Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Wood, EM and Critical Care NP, medic, podcast host, and wilderness enthusiast. It's great to have you joining us today. We know there are a lot of podcasts you could be listening to, a lot that you could be doing with your time. We're thrilled that you're spending that time with us to learn something new today. I'm excited to have our guest, Dr. Ann Pringle from the University of Wisconsin today. Dr. Pringle is the Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of Botany and Bacteriology in the Department of Botany and the head of the appropriately named Pringle Lab. Was it named Pringle Lab before you got there or was that? All labs are named with the last name of the principal investigator. So everyone I know has a lab named after them. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, of course. It, and I, the other, it's this is not endorsed by the Pringle Chips Company. I know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to get that out of the way. So Dr. Pringle, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Um, can you start with Thank telling you. us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, my name is Anne Pringle. And uh, let's see, um, I grew up overseas in Southeast Asia and West Africa. And I spent a lot of time outside as a kid. And um, eventually that translated into a career where I thought I would spend a lot of time outside. I spend less time outside the more senior I get in my profession. Um, but it's still, I still get to spend a lot of time out in the woods, looking at things, studying things. I'm a mycologist. That means I study fungi. Um, I've studied fungi in lots of different places and in lots of different contexts. But today, what I'm going to talk to you about is a fungus that I've been working with for a long time that happens to have um, the same initials as my name. I'm Anne Pringle, and the fungus I study is Amanita phylloides, the death cap. If you get to go to Wisconsin, highly, highly recommended. So let's better, let's better dig in. Eat. I want yeah. Okay. You know, go ahead. Better to better to eat cheese curds than better to eat cheese curds than Amanita phylloides. <laughs> well, I think yeah. Well, that's a good start. That's a great start to our dive into Amanita phylloides, the death cap. So let's let's hear your story about this uh, this interesting and toxic mushroom. So when I was in graduate school, I was trained more as a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say a, um, a, a botanist and someone who studies plants. And I, but what I've always been really interested in is interactions between plants and other organisms underground. So when you ask a kid to draw a plant, often what they draw is a stem and a flower. But of course, that's just the above ground bit of a plant and below ground, there are roots and those re roots, it turns out, interacts with a, those roots interact with a lot of bacteria and, and a lot of, of fungi. And as I did my PhD work, I became increasingly intrigued by fungi. They seemed like the black box of biology. Uh, biology sometimes feels like you, you learn a lot in these introductory classes and then you spend the rest of your career figuring out that everything you learned in that introductory class was wrong because there are a zillion exceptions to the zillionth rule that you learned. And fungi in every way seem like an exception to any, any rule of genetics or sometimes it felt evolution. Um, so I wanted to, when, for my postdoc, I, I wanted to, to work more with fungi. I wanted to become less of a botanist working with plants and more of a mycologist working with fungi. So I went to train in, um, in the lab of, labs of John Taylor and Tom Brems at the University of California at Berkeley. And I was doing various projects, but I was also trying to make myself more of a mycologist, which at the time for me meant identifying mushrooms. And I collected a set of mushrooms and I didn't know what they were and I brought them into the lab. 
uh, and Tom looked at them and he said, oh, he said, you know what those are? And I said, no. And he said, those are death caps. Um, he said, there's a rumor that those death caps are not native to California, that they're European, but that somehow they're spreading in California. Huh. I thought that's interesting. I heard a lot about invasive plants, for example, but I don't really hear too much about invasive mushrooms. Anyway, that was an interesting moment. And then I, I sort of forgot about it. And then a few days later, I came back to my desk and there was a hand-drawn skull and crossbones sitting on my desk. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, this is Tom telling me <laughs> that I need to look at these death caps more closely. And so that started a, um, gosh, I guess it's been almost a 15-year journey now. Um, and the first, the first job for me was to try to understand something about the history of the death cap, the Amanita phylloides in California, and whether in fact it was a European species invading or whether it was native to California. So I started by looking at the every piece of literature I could find that reported the death cap in North America. And this turned out to be really interesting because death caps kill people easily. And what they do very specifically is there are toxins within the death cap that start that stop protein synthesis. So death caps stop your RNA polymerase 2 from working. And if your RNA polymerase 2 doesn't work, then um, your then you start to have organ failure in the organs that are, are cleaning out your blood. And here, I think the audience will know more than I will. But basically, um, as your organs shut down, you die. And it has a very strange and, and um, sad pattern of, of illness where someone will eat a death cap, they'll have vomiting, they'll have diarrhea, then they'll recover. There's this grace period. And you recover maybe after six or eight hours, but then six or eight hours after that, it, it, uh, you, um, you get very sick again. And that's typically when people go to the hospital. And then, uh, you know, from there, a number of things can happen, but, um, but death is a, is a likely outcome of, of eating, of eating a death cap. So it's a very, it's a, and, and death caps have featured in history. It's reputed that death caps were used to kill a, um, a Holy Roman emperor, for example. Um, they were potentially used to kill various other famous people through history. They featured in mystery novels. There's punk rock songs about them. So they're, they're somewhat iconic on our, cultural landscape. And all that translates into people wanting to find death caps. People are excited to find death caps. It's, it's sort of weird and cool and intriguing. So when you read the literature, for example, you can read in Science Magazine in the 1800s that some family died of eating poisonous mushrooms in Science Magazine. And in Science Magazine, they say those are death caps. Well, they're not death caps. Amanita phylloides don't grow in North Carolina, not to my knowledge. And I don't I, you know, I think I, I think by now someone would have alerted me if they had appeared there. They're certainly not part of the natural um, mushroom um, mycota, as we say. So, so the historical literature that means is is full of inaccuracy, full of people who who are someplace and they say I found the death cap, but you're pretty sure they didn't find the death cap. And the herbaria, which are herbaria, are collections of dried plants or dried um, mushrooms. Although now we also use the word fungarium instead of herbarium, but um, nonetheless, these dried collections—you can find all these collections that are that are labeled as death caps. 
So, so my first job was really to be a, a, a detective of the historical scientific literature and try to understand what records were real, what records weren't real. And then I, I um, in collaboration with a lot of really wonderful people who've worked in my lab through the years, we used ancient DNA techniques to actually sequence these herbarium specimens, for example, from the 1930s. And we could say, yes, it's a death cap, or more typically, no, it's not a death cap. Um, someone just wanted to find it. Anyway, long story short, and it really is a much longer story, um, we discovered that the death cap is invasive in California. It's not a Californian native. So like other invasives, famous invasives like kudzu or garlic mustard or, um, you know, in your local habitat, you can probably think of species that people are worried about because they're invasive, honeysuckle, buckthorn. Um, the death cap is like that. It's spreading uh, and, and it's abundant in habitats where it was introduced by, by humans. Okay, so how was it introduced by humans? Well, we don't know. And I think at this point, we'll never know. You'll hear stories, a reasonable story is that in California, where there's a lot of wine, corks were brought over from, from Europe, cork oaks were brought over from Europe, and the cork oaks were planted to try to establish a domestic cork industry. And that when those trees were brought over again, back to the theme of plants have roots and roots are associated with all kinds of things. When those trees were brought over with soil attached to the roots, there were death caps in that soil associated with the plants. Because death caps don't exist really to kill you or me. Death caps are mycorrhizal fungi, which means that in nature they form symbiotic associations with plants and there's an exchange of resources. So the plants are photosynthetic, they generate carbon, um, the carbon is shunted to the fungi, the, to the death caps, and the death caps are scavenging in soil for nutrients. Let's think of nitrogen, for example, and they bring that nitrogen to the plant. So it's what we call a mutualism, a beneficial exchange of carbon for nitrogen. So that's a really different invasion story from probably what most listeners will be familiar with because somehow there are these hidden worlds of biodiversity that we don't pay attention to in the same way that we pay attention to plants or animals, you know, pandas. Um, and, and so there are things happening in our world that we don't notice. We don't have so many observers looking at them. Uh, and that's a large part of what I do is and I'm, I'm an observer, I'm a recorder, I consider that my great responsibility to, 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 to look and watch and try and understand. So at this point, there are a few other species like the death cap that are known to be invasive. So for example, the very famous Amanita muscaria, which is the famous mushroom that's red and has white spots all over it. That is introduced to Colombia. It's uh, invasive in Colombia where it started associating with an endemic um, oak. Colombia is the southernmost distribution of oaks in the world. And high in the Andes mountains, you can find these oaks. And then, gosh, you can find this European fungus there too, again, associating with the, with the roots. So that's sort of the, the short version of the initial work with phylloides, with the death cap. So I, one of my um, uh, other tasks or, or jobs was working as a specialist in poison information at the Massachusetts and Rhode Island Poison Center. Um, and one of the calls we would get fairly regularly was um, from a panicked parent uh, stating that their child had eaten a mushroom 
um, you know, out in the out in the lawn. Um, they'd want to bring that mushroom to us to see if we could identify it, which is much more difficult than, you know, I think most people think. And that's not what we're set up for. We're not a lab to do that. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, we knew that for the, most of the mushrooms in, in these areas were non-toxic. Um, however, our recommendations were always, um, and this is not something we recommend anymore, but to give the child Ipecac and then bring them to the emergency department, which was certainly punishment enough for um, eating mushrooms off the lawn. Um, did the car- so we, we've all, the, the other Amanita that we all think about, the red cap, the white spots, you know, it's, it's not only known fairly well to people in emergency medicine, um, but, you know, it's also um, drawn in, you know, as kind of the classic poisonous mushroom. Does this mushroom, what are the physical characteristics of it that are distinguishing for it? Or does it look pretty much like other common mushrooms? Is there that kind of danger to this, to this species, to this mushroom? So I used to think that there wasn't that kind of danger, that the death cap would be pretty straightforward to avoid, but I don't think that anymore after some years of experience and some some missteps and some stories. I'll give you an example. Um, actually, I used to live in Massachusetts, and when I lived in Massachusetts, someone contacted me and said, you know, someone in someone ate a death cap and they collected it in Newton, and Newton is a is a suburb, a, a, you know, a city outside of Boston, and I lived in Newton. And I said quite confidently, well, there are no death caps in Newton, so they cannot have eaten a death cap. And uh, someone said, well, I don't know. The guy at the emergency room said it was a death cap. And I was like, oh, ho, ho, can't be a death cap. Um, and then I got a photo um, and the, the and it was a terrible photo, um, but it was a photo. And still from the photo. Anyway, you can see where this story is going. Long story sh- or shorter story short, whatever. Um, the it was a death cap, and actually, then I re- then very kindly I was put in touch with the person who had eaten the death cap, um, who almost died but didn't, and and he was very kind, and he took me to the place where he had collected the death caps in Newton, and that was important to me from a scientific perspective because that poisoning alerted me to a place where death caps grow. Um, that I hadn't known and no one had known that they, they, that, that, that they grow in Newton, which they do, um, in a very manicured suburban setting. So, um, so between that and another story where, again, I thought, oh, no one could ever confuse, you know, death caps with this other thing, um, and then someone confused death caps with this other thing, (laughs) um, I realized a a couple of things. One, I don't think... As the story changes year by year, we can't use past knowledge of the death caps distribution to say with confidence where it is now. That's one theme that emerges out of that. And that was a lesson I learned a bit the hard way. Um, And the second theme is that even if I think it looks pretty distinct, it's very hard to um, tell from other people's sets of eyes what they do or they don't see when they're picking up a mushroom. So with those rather large caveats, uh, I would say that there are some distinctive characteristics of the death cap. The color, which is um, it has these olive green striations on the cap, and it also has around the stem of the mushroom a skirt, but not always. But it should have a skirt. It really looks like a skirt around near the top of the stem, and at the base of the stem there should be a cup. I've always thought that the death cap should more proper, properly be named the death cup because of this cup that's at the base. 
So those are all things that, that are signatures of the death cap, but those three things are not really enough to tell you, if you don't see those things, it's not really enough to tell you that, that the mushroom is edible, for example. So just like anything else, you have to spend a little bit of time to learn your biodiversity before you eat your biodiversity. So in the same way that, you know, people have learned to tell the difference between parsley and cilantro, and they can tell the difference between parsley and cilantro, even if you're outside of a grocery store and they're not labeled, you have to take time to learn the difference between whatever it is you're wanting to eat and death caps. And sometimes it's really easy. Morels and chanterelles look very different from death caps. There are other things you can confuse morels with, for example, but you're not going to confuse them with death caps. Um, but yeah, but in but so 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 it's not. I guess what I'm saying is it's not straightforward, and I don't think it's straightforward even for for plants necessarily to tell the difference between what's edible and not edible. You have to take your time, and you have to you have to learn. It's um, it's it's not eating mushrooms that you you pick yourself is not something that you should do lightly. I would say. Yeah. And I, uh, you mentioned parsley and cilantro. I've become an expert actually in identifying the two because I have, I guess there's a genetic polymorphism where cilantro tastes like soap to a small yeah. percentage of the population. One of those individuals, and I've always thought it tastes terrible um, because of that. And so now I've become quite, quite um, an expert at, at differentiating the two, but, um, but kidding aside, mushroom collectors, um, even some of the most expert people make mistakes. And it seems yeah. like one of those kind of things that is just the, the reward versus the risk just seems to be a very narrow window. Um, you know, we kind of think about therapeutic windows for, for medications. It seems like, you know, the, the reward is probably nice if you find good tasting, you know, mushrooms that you can collect in the, in the wilderness. But I've, you know, I know that even people that are expert mycologists make those mistakes. And it seems like that risk is quite, quite high. Um, and that, as you mentioned, sometimes some of the features of that mushroom can vary. It seems like you, you know, collecting mushrooms could be really problematic, um, even I for mean, the I experts. Love, I love collecting and eating wild mushrooms. I love morels. I love chanterelles. I love, you know, something called a blank black trumpet most of all um and they're not those aren't particularly hard things to learn you just have to work with someone who can teach you so i'm definitely not i'm not of the mind that everyone should avoid all mushrooms at all times I, that's not where i am but i'm i'm i want to offer a more i guess thoughtful perspective which is that um that you can you can learn the difference but you have to take the time to learn the difference you know, between, between edibles and not edibles. Um, what you say about, about even experts make mistakes, it brings up a really interesting, um, fact, which is that most of our mushroom biodiversity is undescribed. So if you want to name a new species, you know, get the two mycology because you can find new species. It's more or less routine. And one of the things that's true, let's just talk about Amanitas. Many of the Amanita species that we have in North America have European names because um, when European namers first encountered the mushrooms, they looked in the resources that they had for Europe and they said, well, it looks sort of like a Varosa. We're going to call it Amanita Varosa or Citrina is another example. But if you do the DNA sequencing, it's really clear that what people have been calling Varosa here 
um, and the Verosas are the destroying angels. <laughs> so they're also deadly poisonous. They're alabaster white. They're really beautiful in the forest. Um, but the destroying angels are quite clearly a, a complex of species, not just one species. And that complex still has this European name, as does Amanita citrina. So one of the things that I'm not even joking. I mean, the, although it's going to sound, I don't know how it's going to sound to people listening to this podcast, but there's an element of this that we need to decolonize our naming system. You know, we need to take the time to, to, to really properly understand the biodiversity that is North American as opposed to the biodiversity that's elsewhere. So, that, so when you're in a space where a lot has not been described, then the even experts making mistakes is also, you could say equivalently, even experts find new things all the time. But naming species is really difficult work. It's, t it's time intensive. It's not supported. So you could say, well, why haven't all these things been given names? Well, I don't have the time to give all these things names. I also don't have the expertise. It's not really, it's not really my thing to name things. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really complicated problem. There, there aren't enough mycologists to do all this really interesting work. Um, yeah. That's so. There's a lot of there's a lot of unexplored biodiversity on this planet, and and not just in tropical rainforests far away. So if we have some budding mycologists out there, that's that's a good call for uh, for a, a, a potential uh, excellent um, research opportunity for them. Um, Absolutely. Oh, it, yeah. Are there so you know for we have a lot of people who love to venture into the woods. Um, and you know, encounter these species, and a lot of people who I'm sure gather mushrooms and eat them. Do you have any recommendations aside from you know studying mycology? Are there any good guidebooks that you recommend, or you know, safety um, features that you would recommend to you know avoid poisoning? So the the great classic work, um, recent classic work, is a book called Mushrooms Demystified by David Aurora. And even though it focuses on Californian mushrooms, it's still a really good place to start. And and he's in fact makes this point in the introduction. It's a hilarious book. It's so funny to read. And uh, he makes this point in the beginning. He's like, if you're just reading this book to you know, figure out where the psilocybin is, it's not your book. This is not the book for you. This is a book for someone who wants to learn something about fungal biodiversity. It's just, he, but he has a much funnier, more charming way of putting it. Um, but that's a great place to start. And there are increasingly, increasingly, an increasing number of increasingly good local field guides as well, which didn't exist when I was doing my PhD, for example, it just didn't, it really wasn't the thing. Um, I, it would be sort of hard for me to lay all those out for the entire country or world right now. But, um, but what's not hard for me to lay out is that there are some really great internet resources. Mushroom Observer, if you Google Mushroom Observer, is a place where you can post, for example, an image of your mushroom, and very quickly the community will come forward and help you identify that mushroom. It's a really great resource, and it's a global biodiversity, um, it's a repository and an increasingly large repository for global biodiversity data. Um, Mushroom Observer, iNaturalist as well. And, you know, they're each different. There are pros and cons to using Mushroom Observer or iNaturalist, but both are excellent resources, global resources that anyone with an internet connection can access to try to understand and learn some things. Um, neither one of those really replaces sitting down with a good, a good book. Um, there's also websites like mushroomexpert.com. It's Michael Kuo's website, and that's another really great place to learn about 
um, to learn basic things about mushrooms that you, that you might want to know. But the best thing is to go out with people. So to join your local mushroom club, um, there are mycological societies all over the place and going out and, and, uh, and joining your local mushroom club is, and going out with people and going on forays is what we call them. Um, going out on forays with people and, and, and walking and talking with people. That's the best way to learn. No, that's great. Then we'll include those websites and any other texts or field guides that you think might be beneficial in our show notes so that people can refer to those um, and access um, those. I, so the other question, you know, um, you talked about how did these get here? And, you know, we think about that, um, you know, environmentalists think about this for a lot of invasive species. Um, uh, you know, in marine biology, uh, you know, here in Massachusetts, we're seeing loss of some of our oyster population, which to me is devastating as a big oyster enthusiast. And it's, you know, uh, it's, yes. And, uh, you know, it's the, you know, an Asian green crab that's able to actually open the shells, get in and eat the oyster um, before oh, I get wow. to. Uh, and so, yeah, so. Um, you know, and, and again, we, you know, how did they get here? People, you know, suspect maybe on propellers of boats and things of that nature. Um, it sounds like in this case, this was bringing a, another foreign species, these cork oaks here to try to, you know, transplant them and, and develop, um, you know, a natural source for our wineries. Um, you know, what, what are some ways that this can be prevented and so that, you know, we don't see these invasive species that are coming in in, in uh, you know, it, we, I'd like to say unsuspected ways, but we've done this so many times, uh, you know, that it seems like we should be, you know, thinking about this in more, in more detail. Do you think there are ways to mitigate this kind of thing so that this doesn't happen? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the so um, you hinted at something which is true, which is that this is a global phenomenon, a global problem. And actually, the, the I don't know if the words mycorrhizal fungi will, will mean anything to your audience, but there's a there's a chance now that those words will in a way that that those words were really obscured 15 years ago. If I said to someone a mycorrhizal fungus, I'd have to explain what it is. And a mycorrhizal fungus is simply one of these fungi that that exchanges um, carbon from a plant for something it's bringing something to the plants and getting carbon so those are mycorrhizal fungi um, 50 years ago we didn't even really know that those were a thing on the plant on planet earth and some of the earliest evidence came because um, believe it or not pines pine trees are not native to the southern hemisphere but in the Southern Hemisphere now, in places like New Zealand and South Africa, pine trees are grown as a crop, just like wheat or corn or soybean. And they're grown as a crop because you get these pine trees, they grow rapidly. Uh, they like, you know, they like being in the, in the, in places, in various places in South Africa. And then you cut them down and you make them into paper towels and toilet paper. So they're, they're used for pulpwood. They're a crop. But when foresters first started planting pines in places like South Africa, they did not grow. But the foresters figured out that if you sent for soil from somewhere else, like if you literally you wrote back to your, your buddy in the UK and you said, send me some soil. And someone in the UK in, I don't know, someplace called Blenheim Woods sent a tin of soil. This is all recorded in a lovely paper by a guy named Nicola, sent a tin of soil to, to you know his friend in South Africa. And that person put that soil around the base of the pine. Then the pine tree grew. And this is, and so there's a strong correlation between acres of planted forest 
in countries in South America, for example, and numbers of fungal introductions. And that's because the more forest you planted, the more um, pine trees, pine trees are not the only thing that are planted for forestry, but they're a strong component of that. The, the, the more you planted these plantations, the, the, the more the, you know, the greater the probability that you would send for soil from somewhere else and add and add inocula. So, so, so one of the biggest um, solutions to this problem is prevention. Um, which is in places like Colombia, for example, where muscaria is invasive, there are local options to use for forestry, local inocula, local species that one might have used instead of taking mushrooms of Amanita muscaria and chopping them up and spreading them around the base of the pine trees that you're trying to grow. Um, so that's a huge part of it. I mean, I, I would say that an another huge part of it is awareness, right? I think there's still a mindset among a lot of people that invasive invasion biology has to do with plants and animals and and microbial biodiversity just is not a part of the conversation really it's certainly not a part of the popular mindset and you can see that for example maybe some of your audiences they're gardeners and if you're a gardener right now you can go to any garden shop and you can buy a bag of mycorrhizal fungi off the shelf but there are lots of problems with those products, which often don't work. Um, but another problem with those products is that even if there are things in there that might be alive, those uh, those um, those are not native fungi, right? So you're you're sprinkling a potentially invasive species onto your garden. So stop it. Don't do that. Use you know you use local. Do something else. Um, don't 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 grab a, a foreign fungus and, and put it on your and, and put it on your garden. So yeah, I mean I guess a, a stronger a strong strong message there is you know acknowledge that fungal biodiversity and microbial diversity generally is a biodiversity. It's not just about plants and animals. It's not just about birds. <laughs> there are lots of other species on this planet. Um, besides those kinds of big groups that we tend to to focus on for whatever reason. Oh, that's that's interesting. I that was something I wasn't really particularly aware of, and I think that's a good take home message to you know, people that you know are involved in gardening and involved in you know um, planting that you shouldn't be util utilizing those products because they're potentially invasive. Um, the last question I have. Um, would be how has the Amanita, the death cap, impacted other species? Has that been problematic mm -hmm. for other species that people like to collect and that you know people like to eat? Has that been an issue in that it's overgrown or anything of that nature? That's something I'd love to know. And I, I've thought a lot about how to do that kind of research well, and I still haven't figured out how to do that kind of research well. When you're working with an invasive plant, you can use the above ground bits of a plant to, for example, count how many individuals there are of whatever kind of species in a plot of land. Fungal biodiversity is hidden in the soil. So um, I can use molecular techniques, and I have, to try to estimate um, diversity in soils, but it's not uh, obvious in any particular place whether there are or aren't death caps, because the only way to see a death cap at the moment for a human to actually see a death cap is for it to, to make a mushroom. 
Um, but there's no guarantees just looking at a plot of land, whether it's there in any given moment or not there in any given moment. In some places I've seen there are lots of mushrooms. I know it's always there in the soil, but other places not. So it's really hard to think of a of a controlled comparison. What you'd want to do, right, is compare two places, one with the death cap and one without the death cap. And it's really hard to do that well. And because you so you can't really do that well. And you also have no obvious way of seeing if a species has disappeared or if 10 species have disappeared um, because you can't you didn't see them before. And so if they're gone now, you can't see it. Do you know what I mean? So the techniques are totally different. You have to use a lot of, of DNA sequencing technologies and that makes it a non-trivial problem to try to do that work. Oh, that's interesting. And and all, I mean, it's it's seems much more complicated, I think, for the larger fauna that we think about that we can much easily, you know, have a much easier time counting um, that yeah. that would be a much more difficult process. Um, so I mean, let's death caps kill, uh, go ahead, please. Sorry, death, death caps killed dogs. Um, and so that's definitely an impact that that is you know, really unfortunate. And of course, death caps kill people. So if other by other species, you mean, like, not just other species of fungi, which I'm realizing is how I interpreted that. But, you know, death caps certainly have an impact on the surrounding, you know, community interp interpreted broadly in terms of, in, in, yeah, in terms of large animals that eat them. No, absolutely. So you we've had a wonderful conversation um, aside from the health benefits of cheese curds, what are some take home <laughs> message? Yeah. What are some take home messages that you just would like to get out to our audience? Um, you know, at whatever level, be it, you know, cautions around collection or, or, you know, um, how to be a good ecologist. What are some take home messages that you would, you would pass on to us today? Well, I guess at the, you know, at the, at the, at the, end of this um, somewhat long period of time of, of studying death caps, although I'm still in the middle of it, there's a lot more work left to do. One of the things I'm struck by is how, how lucky I am in some strange way that the death cap is something that people want to know about. Because initially people want to know about it because it kills people and that is somewhat fascinating. But really the, the, the message, if you will, of the death cap is, is, uh, is more profound than, than any individual poisoning or, or group of, of poisonings. Um, the message there is about bio changing biodiversity and a changing biodiversity that we don't often think of. A biodiversity that's being lifted up and moved around. Sometimes I think the earth is experiencing this moment where it's like a giant snow globe. You know, those toys that you pick up and you shake and the snow swirls all around and then it settles again. And humans are taking the earth and we're shaking it. And all these species are swirling around the planet and landing and, and uh, what biodiversity looks like in the future compared to what it looked like uh, 200 years ago, it's going to be radically different. But as an ecologist, my primary job is to try to think about that and understand it and, and figure it out. And, and the death cap is, um, is a bit of a messenger that, that these things that we often think about for plants and animals are happening for microbes as well. And that we have a role to play in, in, um, in what we want future biodiversity to look like, but, you know, through all of our own individual actions. So I think that's the, that's the most profound takeaway, I think, for me at the end of it at the end of, you know, the series of publications I've been working on. Right. Well, well, thank you so much again today for joining us. This was a really enlightening uh, conversation. I think there's a lot to learn from this. 
Uh, I look forward to, to visiting those websites and we'll certainly include those in our show notes. Um, thank you to our listeners for spending the time with us today. Um, I would encourage you to also um, look at those resources because they're um, important information for those of you, especially who are involved in collection, but also for those who just are involved in um, ecology or you know the environment, uh, because these are important topics uh, you know for us to know about and for us to be proactive about. Uh, please make sure to follow us at the World Extreme Medicine Instagram at World Extreme Medicine on Twitter at Xped Med, and be sure to visit our website for more live and recorded content at WorldExtremeMedicine.com. Uh, last but not least, we hope you can join us for the Expedition Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's going to be November 13th through the 15th. We'll be both live, we hope, and virtual, and we'd love to have all of our listeners and guests there. So thank you all. Be safe out there, and we'll see you next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.